This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Today marks our final event in our series about Roxana Sabari's book, Between Two Worlds. So if you haven't read that yet, it's an excellent work. We have it here in the library. You can find it online or in your local bookstore if your local bookstore is still open. Um, So we've talked about many themes. We've talked about journalism. We've talked about issues in the Middle East. We've talked about Roxana. We had Roxana Savari here on campus, which was um, a nice treat. Today is our final event focusing in specifically on Iran. And for those of you that don't know, uh, the book Between Two Worlds focuses on Roxana Savari's uh, captivity in Iran. Um, And it, it really is a nice piece of work. So we wanted to talk broadly about Iran itself, so not about the book, but about issues of human rights and what's happening in Iran. So to do that today, we are very, very fortunate to have Elise Arbach, who is the um, Iran country specialist from Amnesty International USA. Um, She's been in this role or working in this role, related to this role since 1995, and she's been an activist with Amnesty International since uh, the 1980s. She holds the Ph.D. from the Department of Near East Languages and Civilization at the University of Chicago. I got that right, right? Okay. And a bachelor's from, um, from Penn in anthropology, majoring in anthropology. So with that, we would like to welcome Elise. Thank you. Okay. Well, thank you, uh, Troy. Thank you so much. Uh, Troy has been so gracious um, and me up at the station uh, earlier today. And uh, thank you so much for, for, for coming out. And I wanted to thank Moraine Valley Community College for, for hosting this series. Uh, excuse me? Okay. Um, so anyway, I just, uh, I'm just i going to be talking about um, Iran. Um, and I just wanted to uh, say, first of all, if anyone has, uh, if, you know, if anyone has any questions, um, uh, please, you know, feel free to ask me um, during, during, you know, you can feel free to interrupt me if, you know, there's something I said that you didn't understand or you want to clarify, whatever, please, you know, feel free to interrupt me while I'm talking and you don't have to, you know, wait until the end, you know, um, um, so just feel free to, uh, to, to jump right in if you would like to. Um, so um, I, uh, I wasn't sure, um, you know, how much people uh, would know about Iran. Um, so I just wanted to do a really brief introduction about Iran. And excuse me if, you know, if people already are familiar with Iran. But um, uh, Iran um, uh, is, is in the Middle East, obviously. Um, it has a population of about uh, 72 million people. Um, and uh, the majority of, uh, of Iranians are Shia, um, Shia Muslims, um, and uh, the, uh, the, the majority language is, is uh, Farsi or Persian. Um, however, there are uh, large majority uh, minority groups in Iran. Uh, there are ethnic minority groups, um, the, uh, the largest of which is, um, is Azeris. Um, Azeris uh, actually um, live mostly in the northern part of Iran, um, and uh, they speak a, a Turkish uh, Turkish uh, language, um, and they are also Shia Muslims. And uh, Azeris in general do not experience uh, persecution in Iran. They're pretty well integrated into um, into society, and uh, a lot of Iranians, uh, maybe even the majority of Iranians, probably have uh, some um, Azeri uh, ancestor or a family member uh, in the family. 
Um, other uh, minority communities um, are at a more disadvantaged uh, situation in Iran. Uh, Kurds um, live in the um, northwest part of Iran. Um, they are, they're mostly Sunni Muslims. Uh, they, they, um, they, they mostly live in uh, poor communities, um, and, um, and many of them struggle economically um, uh, and, uh, and are disadvantaged because they're Sunni Muslims. Um, in the southwest part of the country, um, there are, uh, there's a small ethnic Arab population. They tend to be Shia Muslims as well. Uh, they live in an oil-rich part of the country. However, they, uh, the community does not benefit from the oil wealth um, in that part of Iran, which is called uh, Khuzestan province, um, and they are discriminated against. Um, they speak Arabic as their, um, as their mother language um, and, uh, and are discriminated against because of their ethnicity um, and, um, and face other problems. Um, people who are, I'll, I'll be speaking a little bit more about the persecution of ethnic communities in Iran. And then uh, in the far, um, far uh, southeast part of Iran, uh, you have a small Baluchi population, uh, people who are related to people who live in Pakistan. They also tend to be Sunni Muslims, and they're also discriminated against. Um, the main religion is, uh, is Shia Islam. It's the state religion, uh, the official religion. Um, however, um, uh, there is a small uh, minority of um, Sunni Muslims. Um, there are certain protected religions in Iran, uh, religious groups that are um, uh, recognized in Iran's constitution, and these include uh, Jews, uh, Christians, and, uh, and ancient religions, Zoroastrians. There actually there are there are still Zoroastrians in Iran. They existed before the time uh, before the time of Islam, and. Um, uh, there is a large, there is a group, uh, um, a religious group of uh, Baha'is. Um, it's a religion that was founded in the 19th century. There are about 300,000 of them in Iran, and uh, they are not recognized in Iran's uh, constitution, and they face uh, systematic persecution by the Iranian government, which, uh, which I'll talk about in a little while. Um, so I just wanted to talk a little bit about um, Amnesty's work on Iran and the kinds of um, the way we are sort of our, um, our general approach to working on Iran. Um, and actually, this uh, I should say that Amnesty is you know an international human rights organization. Um, our headquarters are in London, and uh, we have uh, sections in various different countries around the world. So I'm actually the Iran specialist for the USA section, the section here, and I coordinate all the work done by <coughs> Amnesty International USA on Iran, and I work closely with, um, with the team at, um, at, at headquarters in London. Um, so we work on human right, rights violations all around the world. We don't, you know, um, we don't single out anyone, you know, any one country, and uh, we hold every country to the same uh, human rights standards. So we base, uh, we base our work on, on international human rights covenants. Um, there is a covenant that was, uh, that was assigned in 1948 called the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, it's a very expansive document. Um, and uh, in theory, all members of the United Nations agree to abide by the provisions in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So you know, Iran is a member of the United Nations, and it's, Iran, it's the Iranian government's duty to uphold the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So we're, we criticize the Iranian government for not upholding 
uh, its its obligations. Well, I mean, they're obliged under international law to to uh, to uphold the uh, the the duties and all the rights in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. There are also a number of other human rights treaties that Iran has actually signed um, and agreed to, such as the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which it violates on a routine basis. And when, what we do is we, we point out to them that they're just not fulfilling the obligations that they agreed to fulfill. Um, and there really is no, no legitimate response, you know, if they're violating these, uh, these obligations, then they're violating these obligations. But the important thing is to hold every country to the same standards which we try to do. So um, if we criticize Iran, we also criticize uh, the United States. We also criticize Israel. We also criticize China. We also criticize Brazil and any other country that violates human rights. And so it's very important that we are consistent all across the board. Um, we, also, um, we also have no position on what kind of government should be in any, in any country. So unlike you know, many people who criticize Iran's human rights violations, you know, we don't say that there should be a change in Iran's government. We're completely neutral on that. You know, uh, whatever government exists, we expect them to uh, live up to their obligations under international human rights law. Um, we, um, we, we did not take any position, for instance, on the disputed um, 2009 presidential elections in Iran. You know, many people obviously um, felt that they were uh, fraudulent, but we, we have absolutely no position on that. Uh, in addition, we have no position on many of the other um, issues involving Iran. For instance, we have no position on Iran's uh, alleged uh, on Iran's nuclear program. Um, we have no position on whether there should be sanctions against Iran. So, um, so we're completely neutral on the political issues. All we do is we focus on the um, on the human rights issues. The other thing that's a little bit unique about our work on Iran is that um, uh, we do not uh, lobby the U.S. government on Iran at all. Um, in some other, uh, for, for most of the other countries, for instance, um, you know, we would ask the U.S. government to, for instance, uh, protest a human rights violation or maybe even get involved in resolving a human rights situation. Um, we would ask maybe uh, our congressman to to write a letter um, asking a, a certain government to release a prisoner of conscience or end a certain human rights violation, but we just don't do that for Iran at all because of the uh, unfortunate um, um, you know relationship that the U.S. government and, uh, has with Iran. There, they, there is no there are no diplomatic relations between the U.S. government and Iran. There haven't been so uh, since the uh, Iran hostage crisis. Uh, back in um, late 1979, and um, and so uh, and so there is no, uh, for instance, there's no uh, Iran embassy in the United States. Um, there's an Iran human rights mission. Uh, there's an Iran uh, mission to the United Nations uh, in New York, and uh, Iran uh, consular services are taken care of by uh, the um, Iran interest section at the Pakistan embassy. So. I just wanted to just do a little overview on some of the human rights problems in Iran, of which there are very many. Um, and I'll start with one of the biggest problems is um, executions. Um, now, Amnesty International considers uh, executions are always a human rights violation. Um, uh, we're, we're against the death penalty under every circumstance. 
Um, but Iran is actually the number two executioner in the world. And I don't know if anyone knows who the number one executioner in the world is. <laughs> no. Yes, China, exactly. Yes, China is the number one executioner in the world. And uh, we, we have no idea how many people they execute in China. It's well into the thousands. They don't publicize that information. But China executes the, the most people in the world. And Iran is actually number two. Um, and it's been number two for the past several years. Um, last year, we, uh, we, we've, we've, we've confirmed at least uh, 653 executions in 2011. And, um, and there probably were a lot more. Um, and uh, Iran actually has the highest per capita execution rate in the world because, you know, China has like uh, 1.2 or 1.3 billion people. Iran has 72 million people. So the per capita rate for executions is, is higher in Iran than in any other country. Um, so we actually have seen an alarming uh, increase in the rate of executions in Iran over the past few years, especially last year when there was a big jump. And uh, we're especially concerned about a few things. Um, for one thing, Iran is one of the tiny handful of countries in the world that still executes juvenile offenders. That's people who were uh, accused of committing their crimes when they were, uh, you know, uh, before they were 18 years old. And uh, Iran has actually executed juvenile offenders every year um, for the past few years. Um, Iran, um, it's just uh, outrageous. Uh, uh, Ban, you know, the United States banned uh, the execution of juvenile offenders several years ago, um, but Iran still still executes juvenile offenders. Um, in addition to that, according to international law, I mean, uh, executions are actually not illegal according to international law, but um, according to international law, executions can only be carried out for the most serious uh, offenses. And yet 85% of the people that were sure were executed in 2011 were executed for drug-related offenses. Um, and, uh, and many of them were executed in mass executions and public executions. And uh, the main form of the most uh, prevalent form of execution in Iran is hanging. And many of them are, are hung from cranes. Um, and um, uh, not, not, I mean, yeah, public executions we consider to be uh, extremely uh, depraved. Um, and um, and uh, and it undermines uh, humane values in society, um, and uh, they've been practiced more and more in Iran, unfortunately. Um, and then, in addition to that, we've also seen a real increase in the number of people who have been uh, condemned to be executed and also set, uh, executed uh, for politically motivated offenses, um, and. Uh, um, you know, these are people who are alleged to have alleged to be members of uh, of insurgent groups, even though there may not be any evidence that they actually are. Um, these are people who have been accused of vague crimes against the state, um, and uh, and you know, for instance, uh, uh, there are also people uh, alarmingly. Uh, people who've been uh, accused of espionage, um, people who've been accused of um, insulting Islamic sanctities. And I'll just mention one young man, uh, Saeed Malikpour, who's a, um, an Iranian who ha actually had been residing in Canada for many years. Um, and he went back to Iran a few years ago uh, to visit his family there and was arrested. And he was sentenced to death. 
And what was his crime? Well, Saeed Malikpour is a web, uh, web, uh, web developer, and he developed some kind of web program that would enable people to upload uh, photographs to the web. And, uh, and someone used uh, this program that he designed to upload pornographic pictures to a website. And so for that, even though he was not involved in this himself, he was sentenced to death for uh, insulting Islamic values, and his death sentence was confirmed, and he could be executed at any time. Uh, another alarming case that we're working on is a case of a, a Christian pastor, of a gentleman named uh, Yusuf Nadarkhani, who, um, who actually was born and raised a Muslim, and then he decided to convert to uh, evangelical Christianity when he was 19 years old and uh, became a pastor, and he was uh, convicted and sentenced of a crime called apostasy, which means turning away from Islam, and, uh, and uh, he could be executed at any time as well. So we're very concerned about these sentences. Um, also, a number of people who are members of Iran's ethnic minorities, especially Kurds and ethnic Arabs, uh, have been sentenced to death uh, just for their um, supposed involvement with uh, with um, with with, uh, with uh, organizations that promote um, greater rights for their for the ethnic group. Uh, for, for instance, several Kurdish rights activists um, have been executed in the past couple of years. Um, many of them had been severely tortured um, in detention before they were executed, and many of them are still on death row. There are at least 19 Kurdish uh, prisoners who are on death row. Um, in Iran, and a number of, um, of Iranian Arabs as well are in danger of being executed at any time. And this is mostly because of their advocacy on behalf of their ethnic group for greater rights and recognition um, of the rights of their ethnic group. So in addition to the problem with execution, uh, we have a problem with torture. Um, unfortunately, torture is prevalent in Iran um, in detention. It's against Iran's constitution to torture people, but in fact, you know, untold numbers of people have been tortured. And uh, what's worse, um, many people, people are tortured for a number of reasons. One reason is to punish them. Um, a lot of people have sub been subjected to sexual assaults while they're in detention, both males and females. Um, many people are just subjected to torture, just, yeah, as punishment. Um, some people have suffered unspeakable torture and have come out of prison uh, essentially disabled, um, permanently disabled because of the torture they've experienced. Um, you know, they have uh, uh, broken bones, they become uh, brain damaged, um, they become deaf, blind, hearing uh, visually impaired. Um, various people have uh, all sorts of kidney problems because they've been kicked in the kidneys so many times and so forth and so on. Uh, the problem with torture is compounded because, um, because of the problem with medical neglect um, and unsanitary conditions in Iran's medical facilities. We've issued joint statements with Physicians for Human Rights and other organizations condemning the, uh, the unspeakable conditions in Iran's prisons, the uh, medical neglect um, and the unsanitary and crowded conditions, and unfortunately they have done nothing to resolve those problems. They continue to grow. Um, but also, um, we uh, people are, are tortured and forced to make confessions. Um, I don't know if some of you actually were here to listen to Roxana Sabari when she gave her presentation. Uh, fortunately, Roxana was not subjected to physical torture, but she was uh, subjected to mental torture and, uh, and, and uh, coerced into making uh, um, a, um, a confession that was not true. 
Um, and this is very common um, in Iran, that people are forced to make confessions. Many of them are tortured. Um, their confessions are broadcast on Iranian uh, state television. And these confessions are used against them uh, in their, in their so-called trials, um, which are unfair. Most people who are tried, uh, everyone who's tried of any kind of politically motivated offense um, is tried in what's called a revolutionary court. And these trials are unfair, uh, inherently unfair. Uh, people are not allowed access to their lawyers. Very often they don't meet with their lawyer until the day of their trial. They're not, uh, very often they don't see any uh, charges, any evidence against them. Um, and uh, the trials can only last um, a couple of minutes. We have one woman, uh, Zainab Jalalian, who is a Kurdish woman, was sentenced to death um, after a trial uh, that only lasted about five minutes in which she didn't even know what the evidence was against her. Fortunately, her death sentence was commuted to life in prison. We're still trying to work on that. Um, so um, we have a huge problem with prisoners of conscience uh, who face these unfair trials. Um, we also have a problem with the violence, oppression of dissent. Um, you know, uh, protests, peaceful protests are routinely broken up with uh, by by uh, armed uh, armed agents of the government. Um, various armed agents of the government. There's a para paramilitary group in Iran called the Basij, which means mobilization, and they are very often uh, are armed with uh, truncheons and chains and sometimes knives. Um, during the um, post-election protests of 2009, uh, they actually injured hundreds and hundreds of people, many uh, severely, and uh, at least 70 and probably uh, many times more people were killed by these uh, people in the streets, people who were just out uh, in the streets to peacefully protest the election results. And so uh, they also uh, break up all sorts of demonstrations. They break up women's rights demonstrations. Uh, they break up uh, demonstrations of people who are uh, gathering to mourn the loss of their loved ones. Uh, um, people uh, will demonstrate um, for a number of reasons, women's rights, workers' rights, and these demonstrations are brutally uh, dispersed by these armed agents who injure people regularly. Um, and finally, uh, the Iranian government is uh, engaged in a, in a broad war uh, on its own civil society. Now, actually, uh, amazingly enough, despite the fact that, uh, that the Iranian government has been, uh, has been targeting the people, uh, you still have an extraordinarily vibrant civil society movement um, of very brave human rights activists who refuse to give up in the face of adversity. But the Iranian government is targeting all of them. They're targeting journalists. They're targeting student activists. They're targeting uh, human, uh, human rights lawyers. They're targeting workers. They're targeting uh, women's rights activists. They're targeting bloggers. They're targeting artists. They're targeting film directors. They're targeting um, uh, you know, musicians. Um, it's just uh, anyone who, um, who engages in activity that is not... Uh, that does not uh, get have the support of the Iranian government is targeted these days, and um, and it's uh, and they've uh, there are hundreds of uh, prisoners of conscience in uh, in Iran's prisons now or who have been sentenced to prison. So how do we address these problems? Um, well, we work on the cases of some specific uh, people. Uh, so I'm just going to talk about a few of these uh, people. Um, and I just want to say, uh, from a personal point of view, um, it would be really hard to uh, work on Iran if I didn't, um, if I didn't really learn to uh, care about and respect and, and be inspired by some of these people we, on whose behalf we work, because 
because these are really extraordinary people. Um, and uh, I've actually uh, come to know many uh, former Iranian prisoners of conscience, uh, and it's been a real privilege to, to be able to meet them and, and befriend some of them. So this uh, gentleman here is Majid Tavakoli, who's a student activist. Um, and he, um, he's been in, uh, arrested several times for his peaceful student activism. And uh, he, uh, he was arrested in December of 2009 for making a speech um, criticizing the government for its human rights violations. Because he made the speech, he was uh, sentenced to, well, he was originally sentenced to eight and a half years in prison uh, for uh, supposedly uh, insulting the president and the supreme leader, for engaging in a gathering that was colluding to undermine the, the government propaganda against the state, all these sort of vaguely worded charges that are used against people like him. And he's been sentenced to prison, um, in, uh, and, uh, and his prison sentence was increased by another six months because in December 2010 he wrote a letter from prison uh, to fellow student activists. And uh, because of that one letter that he wrote, uh, an additional six months were tacked on to his sentence. And so, um, and so he's, uh, he's, he's been now serving a nine-year sentence. He's in very poor health. As you can see, this picture was taken before he started serving his prison sentence. He's a young man, and his health has been completely broken in prison. His family can hardly recognize him when they see him. Uh, he's actually undertaken a number of hunger strikes to protest the, um, the conditions, the prison conditions in which being, he's being held. Um, let's see. Wondering, do, uh, Troy, do you know how I can move to the next, um, the next? Oh, hit the space then. Okay, thanks. So um, this is another student activist, and this, um, you know, a lot of people have this uh, idea that you know Iranian women somehow are passive and complacent and uh, and uh, and just um, don't speak out, but that's absolutely not the case. Um, uh, I know a lot of Iranians, and I've never, ever met a, a complacent, passive Iranian woman, woman far from it. Iranian women are incredibly outspoken, and they're some of the bravest and most outspoken activists there are, and despite the fact that there are uh, restrictions, um, uh, for instance, restrictions about their dress. Um, they are uh, discriminated against in family law when it comes to marriage and uh, divorce and child custody rights. But anyway, Bahare Hadayat um, is a very outspoken women's rights activist and also a student's rights activist. And she was actually sentenced to 10 years in prison. And Bahare and uh, Majid have actually written joint letters uh, from prison um, uh, protesting their condition, uh, conditions of confinement and also uh, inspiring their fellow student activists. They still consider to continue to, to communicate with, uh, with their fellow students. And um, these are two of the people that we actually focus a lot of our campaigning about. A lot of our student groups are very involved in, um, in activism on their behalf. Um, one of the big problems in Iran is that uh, not only is there an unfair legal system, but, uh, but human rights attorneys are actually being targeted as well. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, lawyers who defend, uh, you know, human rights defenders who, who defend people who are accused of politically motivated crimes, who defend uh, juveniles uh, and other vulnerable people uh, who are charged with um, who are who are charged with capital offenses and who are, are speaking out against the death penalty are themselves targeted. So these people are just doing their job. They're representing their clients to the best they can, the best to the best of their abilities, and then they in turn are being 
um, arrested and, and, and persecuted just for doing their job representing their clients. So this is an enormous problem in Iran. A lot of attorneys are in this situation. As a matter of fact, I would say just about all of the very prominent um, Iranian human rights attorneys have been targeted in some way or another. Um, Shirin Ebadi is probably the most famous Iranian human rights lawyer. Uh, she's Iran's Nobel Peace Prize laureate, and she's been forced into exile. Uh, she's actually going to be in Chicago next week, by the way, because there's a summit of, um, of uh, Peace Prize laureates that's going to be in Chicago, and she'll be speaking there. Um, and uh, she's a very powerful speaker. She's a very strong advocate for human rights. Um, and, uh, and she's been hounded into exile. She cannot go back to her own country. Um, her family is there. Her, her husband is there. Um, and, uh, but she can't go back herself because it would be too dangerous for her to go back. Uh, other prominent Iranian um, lawyers have also been hounded into exile or else they're in a situation like this lady, Nasreen Sotudeh, um, who um, was sentenced to, she's actually uh, Sharon Ebadi's lawyer, um, and uh, she's been sentenced to, she was originally sentenced to 11 years in prison and a 20-year ban on her professional activities, and Nasreen actually has a husband and two small children, and, um, and uh, fortunately, well, because I, we believe, because of all the activism around her case, we actually worked in partnership with, with other human rights organizations. Um, and her, um, her sentence actually was reduced on appeal to six years and a 10-year ban on her professional activities. But we still consider that, um, we still consider that unacceptable and are working for her release. Um, and here's another lawyer, Abdul Fattah Sultani, um, who was just sentenced to an incredible 18 years in prison uh, to be served in a prison facility uh, about 650 miles away from Tehran. And so um, he, um, he's, been, uh, he's been sentenced to 18 years in prison. And now um, uh, Abdul Fattah Sultani was actually the lawyer for, um, for another case that we're actively working on. Um, and as I mentioned before, um, Abdul, Fattah Abdul Fattah Sultani actually was the lawyer for the seven leaders of Iran's Baha'i community. Um, and uh, the Baha'is in Iran um, are, are severely persecuted. Um, they, um, many of them were actually executed after the uh, revolution in 1979. Many Baha'is were forced to leave Iran. There's still about 300,000 members of the community in Iran. Um, they, uh, they, they are not recognized in the Constitution. They have no legal rights whatsoever. Um, their marriages are not recognized. Um, they are not allowed to attend university, believe it or not. They're not allowed to get their higher education, and many professions are barred to them. So they're an extremely uh, persecuted um, and vilified community uh, by the government, not by the people, but, uh, but the government actually severely persecutes the Baha'is. Now, these seven people here, uh, seven people are all... Um, uh, leaders uh, were seven uh, leaders of Iran's Baha'i community, and they were doing nothing more than trying to um, advocate on behalf of their community, trying to improve life for their community, and they were sentenced to 20 years in prison each just for doing that, just for the, uh, exercising their right to freedom of religion. Um, so Abdel Fattah Sultani was very bravely uh, defending them, and, uh, and he got... Uh, locked into prison himself. Now, um, another, another, uh, another reason why uh, human rights lawyers wind up getting, uh, getting harassed in Iran is because they, uh, they represent people or they, rep they take on cases that achieve international notoriety. Now, this lady, Sakine Mohammed,
Hamidi Ashtiani was actually sentenced to death by stoning. I don't know if some of you actually heard about her case. Um, uh, it was very wide. It was a lot in the news about a year and a half ago or two years ago, actually, two years ago in the summer of 2010. Um, she was uh, uh, sentenced to death by stoning for uh, adultery. And um, this, uh, there are not too many people who are sentenced to death for, um, sentenced to stoning uh, for adultery, but of course it's an outrageous sentence. We consider it utterly barbaric. And uh, her lawyer um, uh, was actually uh, was actually arrested himself because uh, because the case achieved so much notoriety and bad attention to the Iranian government. So he has been held in detention for the past uh, year and a half. He's been severely tortured. Apparently his jaw was broken, his nose was broken, several teeth were knocked out. Uh, he was uh, severely and brutally tortured um, just, for, just for taking on this case, just for defending this woman who had every right to have legal counsel. Um, but uh, we do have some successes, uh, and those are very gratifying. Uh, one of our biggest successes um, was uh, this, uh, these, this pair of brother, uh, brothers, Kamiar and Arash Alai, are both physicians. Um, they're actually internationally recognized uh, experts in the prevention and treatment of HIV AIDS. And um, their case is, uh, is actually really uh, interesting and, and, and very tragic in a lot of ways. Um, one of the very few... Uh, <laughs> Iran usually gets uh, very bad attention uh, in, the, in the media, in the world. Um, but um, one of the very few things that Iran was actually praised for in international forums was its, uh, its HIV uh, treatment and prevention program. And the reason was, was largely due to the efforts of these two brothers, Kamiar and Arash, um, who uh, set up a very uh, forward-thinking program of, of needle exchange, of counseling, of, um, of trying to prevent the spread of HIV-AIDS uh, among a very vulnerable populations such as prisoners, um, such as uh, sex workers and intravenous drug users. Iran has a huge problem with uh, intravenous drug use. It has a very high addiction rate because it's next door to Afghanistan where a lot of heroin is shipped into Iran. So they did this enormous uh, project, uh, tireless efforts to try and uh, deal with this situation in Iran of HIV-AIDS infection. And they were actually recognized by international organizations like the World Health Organization. They got a huge grant, or actually they, they were instrumental for the, in the Iranian government getting a huge grant to, um, to they, they had started off, they had started off uh, these clinics to treat people, to provide social support for people, and this network of clinics actually expanded all over the country in about um, 2004, 2005, 2006 because of their efforts. Um, and uh, and uh, they, they went to a number of uh, talks all over the world, including here, to talk about the progress. Iran was praised. It was recognized for its very forward-thinking, advanced um, a humane treatment of people who are suffering from HIV-AIDS. And, um, and then they, they, they were targeted by the Iranian government in 2008. And why were they targeted? Well, they had been attending uh, conferences here in the United States, um, and they were accused of being recruited by the CIA to overthrow the Iranian government, which, of course, is completely absurd. But that's what happened to them. They were sentenced to long prison terms. Amnesty campaigned tirelessly on their behalf together with other organizations um, such as um, Physicians for Human Rights and other organizations, and uh, they were both released. And uh, fortunately, 
They're both uh, here in the United States right now. Uh, they're doing very well, and they're continuing their work, although sadly enough, they're banned from doing uh, their work in Iran where they're really needed. They're not allowed to go back to their own country, but they are able to continue their work here, and we're very gratified that they were freed. Um, one of the things that we did on their behalf um, every year uh, for the past few years, Amnesty International USA does this action that we call a Nowruz action. And Nowruz is actually the Iranian New Year. Um, it's celebrated the first day of spring. It's the biggest holiday. It's the most important non-Islamic holiday in Iran. It's a very ancient holiday. Um, it's been in existence for well over 2,000 years. And uh, everyone in Iran celebrates Nowruz. So what we do is we, um, we have our activists uh, send greeting cards uh, to prisoners and their families, um, and uh, you know, giving, you know, expressing, you know, you know, just letting them know that we're thinking about them, that they're not forgotten. And this is one of the most important things that we can do, because um, one uh, prisoner of conscience, Maziar Bahari, who is a, a very well-known Newsweek journalist, who was arrested and held in detention and tortured in 2009. Uh, said the, the, the worst nightmare of a prisoner of conscience is to think that he is forgotten. So our, our, uh, our goal is to, uh, our commitment is to make sure that uh, people in this situation are not forgotten. So that's why we send people these no-roos cards at the time of year when they would really like to be out of prison celebrating no-roos with their families. So anyway, uh, fortunately I've gotten to know Kamiar and Arash very well and they had been the subjects of our Nowruz action a couple of years, and they told me that they, um, they actually were given a brief prison furlough um, and uh, were able to go visit their families um, for a few days. And what did they find when they got there? They found hundreds of cards and greetings from Amnesty International members all over the world, and they, were just, they just could not thank us enough for, for having done that. They said once they realized that people around the world really cared about them, it just gave them the strength to go on. When they had to go back and report to prison, you know, it was not, it was horrible, but it wasn't so, it was uh, made a lot easier and a lot better. They had so much more morale and courage just knowing that they had the support of people around the world. Um, so we continue to send no-ruse no actions. We sent no-ruse actions to Majid, who you just saw. We sent no-ruse actions to Bahare. We sent no-ruse actions to, um, um, to uh, Nasreen Sotadeh's uh, husband uh, this, this year. And, uh, and we've been thanked by Nasreen Sotadeh's husband for, uh, for, for our uh, for efforts on their behalf. Um, so another thing we do is uh, we do a lot of public events. Um, this is an event, a solidarity event um, that occurred. This is actually in front of the Iran interest section at the Pakistan Embassy. Um, in Washington last year, and as you see, a number of activists um, were uh, were there holding signs, and uh, and there was a lot of media attention to this. Um, one uh, one thing that we're doing also, we have this, uh, this Azadi Square campaign going on. Now, Azadi Square is uh, is a big public place in uh, in Tehran. Azadi means freedom, so Azadi Square is Freedom Square. Uh, this is a very well-known monument in Iran. Uh, actually, interestingly enough, the architect who designed this monument uh, was actually a Baha'i. <laughs> and, um, and this is a picture of uh, one of the post-election protests. Uh, about two million, at least two million, possibly even three million people poured out into the streets and protested in Azadi Square in the summer of 2009 against the um, against uh, what they believe to be fraud uh, in, the, in the elections. This is a peaceful protest. Um, so anyway, so they, uh, but since then, 
uh, you know, uh, there's been a severe crackdown, um, and people, uh, Iranians, are no longer allowed to hold protests in Azadi Square or anywhere else. Um, they're brutally suppressed. So what we decided to do is we're holding, we have a virtual Azadi Square where uh, we reclaim Azadi Square and we, uh, we support, we provide support and solidarity for Iranians who are not able to, uh, to congregate uh, in their own Azadi Square. So we uh, have symbolically, we, we symbolically rename public places around, uh, all around the world uh, Azadi Square. So what we did last year, last June, is um, we did this action at the uh, Iran-UN mission. Uh, so for one thing, what we did was we uh, renamed the little plaza outside the UN mission Azadi Square. Uh, and I know that the people who were inside the UN mission were not happy about that. But we got a lot of media attention. And the other thing we did, uh, actually, uh, this gentleman is, was our former... Uh, Who directed? What's that movie about the boxer? Um, pardon me? No, no, it wasn't Rocky. It was about the lady boxer. Uh, Million Dollar Baby. That's it. Yeah. So anyway, so he uh, he's been really involved in the campaign uh, to support um, Iranian film director Jafar Panahi. Jafar Panahi is a film director. He's like one of the best known Iranian film directors. And he has been sentenced to six years in prison and a 20-year ban on his artistic activities and all of his professional activities uh, just because, uh, just for his filmmaking and because uh, he supported Iran's uh, green movement. So anyway, so we delivered a stack. Uh, Larry is carrying a stack of 21,000 petitions that we uh, delivered to the Iran mission at the UN. They didn't want to accept the petitions at first, but uh, Paul Haggis refused to leave without, uh, without delivering, hand-delivering the petitions to an official. So after much negotiation that went on for about an hour, we finally succeeded. And we actually got a huge amount of media attention, including media attention on uh, Voice of America Persian Service and BBC Persian Service, service that was broadcast into Iran, which was our goal. And so uh, Iranians know very well what we did, which is uh, you know, one of our big goals, is to let Iranians know about what we're doing. Uh, and so this was an Azadi Square protest that uh, took place in Chicago actually last summer, um, or I should say renaming. We renamed this place in Chicago Azadi Square. Um, so um, other things that we do, we're actually, um, um, we actually co-sponsored an event, a series of programs last week uh, in Chicago um, in several venues. And we actually brought the author of this, uh, this uh, Amir is the author of a graphic novel called Zachra's Paradise. Zachra's Paradise um, is about uh, the aftermath of the uh, 2009 election protests and the crackdown. It's a beautiful book. Um, I would highly recommend that you, you know, that you want to, if you want to read uh, more about it, I would highly recommend it. It's, I mean, you have beautiful illustrations. It's very moving. It tells a story about a woman who has uh, lost her son. Her son did not come back home after a, a protest, and, and she and her other son are, have to go around looking for him. Um, anyway, so uh, you see this picture. This is what a hanging looks like. Uh, these people are hoisted uh, by cranes. Um, it's a very brutal form of execution. Um, but we, anyway, we, we, we work with artists. Um, uh, we work with people who, uh, who produce films. We're also co-sponsoring a presentation of a film about the persecution of the Baha'is. Um, it's called Education Under Fire. 
It's going to be shown at Facets on uh, April 24th, if anyone wants to come and see it. Um, so we, we do these co-presentations. We try to educate the public as much as we can about human rights violations. Um, the other thing, I mean, you know, we, we try to focus on, um, on the case of individuals who are persecuted. We also uh, focus on, on these uh, systemic problems, um, like the, uh, the problem with unfair trials in revolutionary courts. We try to bring it to the attention of the public, to inter international uh, bodies. Um, this is a mass uh, show trial that took place in 2009. Um, all of these people are very highly, uh, are very important officials uh, in, uh, who were so-called reformist politicians. Um, they, were, um, they were arrested and charged with the spurious um, charges, vague charges. Uh, they were accused of somehow um, organizing the protests, the election protests in 2009, even though there's absolutely no evidence that they did. Even if they had, it should not be considered a crime. Anyway, these, they, they were subjected to these uh, mass show trials. And many of them were tortured and forced to make confessions on, on, on state TV. So we work against these systemic problems of executions, of, 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 of show trials, of uh, unfair trials, um, of uh, vaguely worded laws uh, in, uh, in Iran's uh, penal code. We also work uh, in uh, international bodies. We work to ensure that uh, Iran is uh, condemned by the United Nations. Um, uh, we actually um, have had a victory just in the past couple of years. The Iran has been uh, condemned several times by the UN Secretary General who has to write a report twice a year about Iran's progress. And of course it doesn't have any progress. They just backslide, they just get worse. Um, and in addition, the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva, um, the UN uh, has actually appointed a special, it's called a special rapporteur for Iran. It's the only special rapporteur for any country. And that rapporteur is, uh, is supposed to report on, on, um, on, on Iran's progress, on human rights, uh, human rights progress. Uh, Iran has not permitted the special rapporteur to enter the country. Um, Iran does not allow any, like the special rapporteur on torture, any representatives of the UN to, to come into the country to investigate, uh, even though they, they keep on going to um, international bodies. Okay, this is Iran's uh, so-called high commissioner for human rights, Mohammed uh, Javad uh, Larajani, who goes to uh, you know Geneva and New York regularly and uh, and claims that Iran complies with the UN and has a wonderful human rights record, but it doesn't allow monitors to come into the country. Um, it does not allow Amnesty International to come into the country. We have requested access many times to Iran and they refuse to give us access. So um, I'm going to stop here and uh, if anyone has any questions, uh, please let me know. Okay. Well, actually, uh, the author is Amira, is a man, actually, and the book is called Zahra's Paradise, um, and Zahra's Paradise is actually the name of the biggest, most well-known uh, cemetery in Iran, in Tehran, um, and uh, it's, it's a wonderful book. I, I can give you more details about it later. Yeah, he's an Iranian citizen. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, they, they've targeted a lot of uh, dual nationals. Um, uh, I mean, Roxana Sabari is actually a U.S. citizen. Uh, technically, she's not really an Iranian citizen. She was, uh, she was not born in Iran. Um, her father was Iranian, is Iranian, uh, although is a naturalized U.S. citizen. But the Iranian government uh, considers uh, anyone who is either born in Iran or whose parents were born in Iran to be permanently Iranian, you know. And so uh, when Roxana went to Iran, she actually did go on an Iranian passport. Um, but it, Roxana was not the only uh, Iranian-American who was targeted. Um, there's actually a, an Iranian-American uh, now uh, who was a U.S. citizen who was not born in Iran. He's been sentenced. He was sentenced to death for espionage. Um, uh, there was a, uh, a joint um, uh, Iranian-Netherlands uh, uh, citizen who was executed last year. Um, and um, and of course, this, um, uh, there, there have been other cases of Iranians, uh, Iranian origin people who've been uh, who've been imprisoned for long periods of time. Um, but uh, but even non people with no Iranian background. I mean, there was a case of the three so-called hikers um, in 2009. Uh, they they had no Iranian background at all. They just uh, were picked up uh, hiking along uh, the border charged with espionage, and they were tried and convicted of, uh, of espionage. So, um, yeah, so it's... <laughs> oh, well, they have been released, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they, w they were just released. I mean, uh, Sarah was released in 2010, and Josh and Shane were released in 2011. But uh, Josh and Shane actually did spend two years in prison in Iran, more than two years, actually. They spent two years and two months in prison. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's actually hard, uh, you know, because, uh, uh, I mean, you know, what, I mean, what we do is, I mean, what Amnesty does is we, you know, we, we, we constantly hammer away at them, you know, to make sure that it's always, you know, in the public eye, that it's not forgotten. Um, we believe that embarrassment is, uh, is a very important way of getting uh, some countries to, uh, I mean, the, the Iranian government actually does care very much about its public image. That's why it sends these high officials to, uh, to Geneva and New York to defend its human rights record. And they, they do get very embarrassed. You know, they don't, they want to think of them, they want everyone to think of them as a country that, um, you know, that's civilized, you know, they pride themselves on their ancient culture, they don't want to be called barbarians in public. Um, and they get very embarrassed, like with this whole um, uh, this whole case with Sakine Mohammadi Ashtiani. You know, there was such an outcry over over this uh, stoning sentence. They were sort of falling all over each other, trying to uh, you know trying to answer. You know, um, you know, to try. And they kept on saying, "No, no, she wasn't uh, convicted of adultery. She's convicted of murder. She was done this and this and that." So they were they definitely react to public opinion. They're very concerned about that, and and they they try to block broadcasts. They try they prevent. Uh, uh, broadcasts of um, of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of programs that they're, uh, they they block the internet. They don't want their. So they, I mean, Iranians are very clever about getting around it, um, and a lot of them have satellite dishes. They also, you know, they ban journalists from covering Iran. So they're very concerned about the Im information both going in and coming out. But like, um, 
I mean, I guess we can see this problem more like in a, in a case like Syria, where I mean, they're con they're just butchering their own people. I mean, it's probably about 10,000 people by now that they've butchered men, women, children, and the international community just um, you know they just can't figure out what to do about it. This has been going on for several months now. Um, you know, even if um, I mean, in theory, you know, it could, there could be some kind of a uh, a UN mandated mission like uh, to Libya for instance that's that's one recent example where you know the UN actually did provide um, uh, some kind of air cover to prevent the Libyan military from uh, from flying its planes to attack people um, but they can't even decide to do something like that uh, right now in the case of Syria because of China and Russia um, are uh, are vetoing it would veto it in the Security Council so I mean that's why you know this has been going on for so long trying to come up with some kind of a, a solution unfortunately there really is no <laughs> there is no way I mean to uh, you know you know to have some kind of a set of procedures, you know, to deal with a country that, that is violating human rights on such a scale, unfortunately. Why do I think so? I mean, well, you know, the country, I mean, the government uh, does, not, uh, does not tolerate any, tolerate any form of dissent. Um, you know, any kind of questioning of their power, any kind of um, independent media. I mean, Iranians are, uh, are really an incredible people. I mean, uh, you know, uh, especially um, under the previous president, um, you know, Khatami, who was in office between uh, 97 and 2005, there was a real blossoming of, um, of journals, of, uh, of websites, of, of all kinds of outlets uh, for creativity, of course, Iranian film is well known around the world, um, and uh, Iranians are just, uh, uh, you know, I mean, Iranians have uh, one of the highest rate of internet usage. Um, Iranians are incredibly, it's very highly educated, highly, highly literate population. Um, it's not a typical profile of a country that's an authoritarian government. Uh, you know, I mean, Iranians are extraordinarily highly educated. And, um, you know, I mean, the Iranian government basically feels threatened by its very, uh, very talented, very intelligent, very engaged population. You know, people who think, people who are educated uh, are going to start asking uncomfortable questions like, uh, why is it that these people uh, have uh, unquestioned power to do all these things to us? And the government doesn't like people to ask questions like that. So they, uh, they viciously target people and try to uh, sort of... Um, beat them into submission basically and uh, to their credit the Iranians don't allow themselves to be beaten into submission I mean uh, you know I, I'm always astounded when I read these stories about what people will go through uh, like Majid I mean he knows that he's going to get punished every time he writes a letter from prison and he still does and why does he do it you know all he, he knows that he's going to be sitting in, I mean he he has a reason to expect that every time he does that he's going to get more prison time slapped onto him he could die in prison a lot of people have and they still go on. The government is terrified of people like that. You know, they're, they're more terrified of people like that than they are of uh, armed, uh, armed resistance. They claim these people are involved in armed resistance movements. There's no evidence for that. But they're, what they're really afraid of is people talking, people writing, people thinking, people, people making films. No, no, I mean, well, we, I mean, we have, uh, 
uh, ties with, I mean, uh, you know, again, you know, there, there's so many Iranian human rights uh, activists and organizations that work in the country despite all the dangers. And, uh, you know, we have uh, long-standing relationships with uh, a lot of these organizations and individuals. Uh, and actually, you know, Iranians are still able, fortunately, to communicate with us via, you know, their Gmail accounts, via Skype, um, phones or chat, but they can have Skype conversations with us and with other organizations. Um, you know, we talk regularly to, I mean, you know, there's a huge Iranian diaspora, both here in the United States and in other countries, and um, we talk regularly with uh, people who, uh, who are in constant communication with their friends and relatives back in Iran. So there's actually a huge amount of information out there about these cases. Um, and, uh, you know, and there's some, you know, sometimes these cases are in the state-run media, um, you know, like, for instance, um, you know, a lot of executions are publicized in the media. Um, some of them aren't, but some of them are. But, um, but there are, we mostly find out from our contacts and informants uh, and family members and so forth. And, uh, I mean, we do have to verify uh, our information, um, but we do work closely together with other organizations. And Amnesty has put out just a huge number of reports um, on Iran. Um, we put out several major reports a year, and then the actions probably every week, if, and multiple actions usually every single week. Um, the problem isn't so much the lack of information. The, the problem is too much information. I mean, I get approached constantly by people who say, oh, my cousin is in prison. You know, I heard about this person. My sister-in-law's friend is in prison. The problem is that, uh, that uh, we can't uh, take on every case just because there are so many. Oh, how did it start? Well, um... Well, let's see. I mean, in, uh, you know, in 1953, um, there, there was a democratically elected um, government uh, in Iran. Um, that government was actually uh, overthrown in a coup that was orchestrated by the CIA and the British um, M5 or whatever it's called. And um, the Shah of Iran, who at that point had been sort of sidelined, um, uh, was actually uh, was able to uh, to become more of a sort of an absolute monarch. Uh, so he um, he uh, he you know he he reigned pretty much as an absolute monarch between 1953 and 1978, and he was supported by the United States. Um, and uh, unfortunately, you know, he tortured his uh, his uh, his critics as well. There were a lot of human rights violations under the Shah's regime. Um, there was a revolution in Iran. Um, it started in 1978 with major street protests, major labor protests, um, and uh, in 1979, uh, in February of 1979, an exiled uh, Shia cleric um, uh, who is uh, Ayatollah Khomeini uh, returned to Iran from exile in Paris, and uh, he became the supreme leader. Um, uh, after the revolution. And the revolution uh, was actually just, uh, 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 had happened, uh, was major protests in the streets. A lot of different groups, including, you know, both religious people, as well as very secular people, as well as Marxists, as well as uh, ultra-nationalists, a lot of these people were protesting uh, to bring down the Shah's government. Um, the, Shah, the Shah did fall. Um, he, um, you know, he was replaced by a prime minister. And then after Khomeini came back, uh, Khomeini had been advocating for, um, for a system of government uh, which, is, uh, which is pretty un is, is unprecedented, actually, uh, where uh, you, know, you have a religious cleric who's a so-called supreme leader. And, 
and uh, and so uh, you know by the end of 1979, uh, actually the majority of uh, the Iranians uh, voted to uh, install a, a, an Islamic Republic led by a supreme leader. Um, so this was something they voted on, uh, maybe not knowing what the consequences would be necessarily. Um, but uh, but, the, but after that point, uh, the uh, the religious leaders, the uh, the clerics uh, who were aligned with Khomeini, uh, engaged in a brutal crackdown against their former allies. You know, they threw all the communists and the leftists and the secular humanists, whoever, uh, in prison, and, and many of them were executed eventually. Um, and uh, and that you know, so um, the uh, the government uh, has been an Islamic republic since uh, since late 1979. Oh, you mean after 1979? In, yeah. Well, um, yeah, a bunch of radical students actually um, took over the uh, American embassy in Tehran uh, in 1979. Um, the reason was that, um, you know, the Shah of Iran had actually been ill after, you know, after he was uh, had to step aside. And uh, and he um, and uh, he he was he had to get medical treatment, um, and actually the President Carter, who was the American president at the time, uh, invited the Shah of Iran into the United States so that he could get medical treatment. And so uh, these radical Iranian students, with the blessing of the uh, government at the time, actually took over the uh, American embassy in Tehran and held a number of uh, Americans hostage for more than a year. Um, they, they were all released, uh, you know, after uh, Reagan was elected uh, to be the president, and um, and a couple of them actually have spoken out uh, uh, over the years. Actually, there was uh, one one gentleman who um, who actually speaks regularly about uh, you know about Iran. He actually loves the country. You know, he married an Iranian woman um, and speaks fluent Persian. And, uh, but he does advocate for diplomatic relations between the U.S. and Iran. Um, so he's probably been the most outspoken person. He was a fairly highly placed uh, individual in the diplomatic corps. So, so. Okay, well, thanks. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library.